Being a professional isn't about the money you make, the position you hold, your level of expertise or fame. It's the motivation and the attitude you bring to your work. A desire for always learning and improving and balancing your creative output with getting the business done. Welcome and join the Creating Pros. Hi, and welcome back to Creating Pros. I'm your host, Jim Nettles, and this week we're going to be having a little bit of fun. We're going to be talking about Spider-Man swinging into Bowling Green and the Spider-Man conference. Before we go too far, I've got some friends in this week to kind of dive into and talk about pop culture school as well as the conference itself. So I want to ask you guys to introduce yourselves. So Chuck, you're up first. Yes. Hi, my name's uh, Chuck Coletta, and I'm a, a teaching professor at the Department of Popular Culture at Bowling Green State University in good old Bowling Green, Ohio. Matt? Yeah, this is uh, Dr. Matt Donahue. I am also a teaching professor at the Department of Popular Culture um, and also a musician, artist, filmmaker, and writer. Uh, and again, we love the connection to the Department of Popular Culture at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. Tyne? Hi, uh, my name's Tyne. I'm the Manuscripts Archivist at the Brown Popular Culture Library at Bowling Green State University. So let's actually talk just a little bit before we get dive into the conference itself. Talk a little bit about pipe, pop culture school. Talk a little bit about the library. Kind of all the stuff that you guys just do during the year when you're not out there talking about pop culture. Oh, wait, that's all you do. So, <laughs> um, so I'll throw that that up in the air. Who wants to kind of grab onto that? Well, well, I'll start and then I'll pass it off to, to Matt. Um, the Department of Popular Culture and the Pop Culture Library have been uh, going strong for just over 50 years now. Um, and both uh, institutions were started by Dr. Ray Brown, B-R-O-W-N-E, who was probably the most significant academic who ever taught at BGSU. Uh, Dr. Brown was a folklorist by training, uh, and he came to Bowling Green back in the 1960s. And he wanted to study what became known as popular culture. He and we define it largely as the culture of everyday life. So why not study the things that the average person is doing every night for entertainment, for fun, you know, the politics that they're doing, the, the, the movies, the TV shows, the comic books, you know, the pulp novels that they're reading. Um, and it's thanks to Dr. Brown that this is really a largely growing and very strong um, field of academia. He, he helped popularize the term popular culture. So if you've ever heard someone talk about pop culture, it's largely thanks to Dr. Brown and his efforts all those decades ago. Or we can blame him, you know, your choice either way. <laughs> so, Matt, how about you? Yeah, and I would, you know, I uh, Chuck had some great background uh, there. And just to add, a, you know, a couple things, as Chuck mentioned, you know, the Department of Popular Culture uh, is, you know, in its uh, 50th year. Um, and really... You know, Dr. Brown was a doer and we really, we really, you know, we, we, we love his spirit, his doing, you know, his can do spirit um, and his notion that, um, you know, popular culture is tied into this notion of, of everyday life. It should be noted that when he first started the depart department of popular culture, 
uh, that there was a lot of resistance to the study of popular culture, not necessarily at Bowling Green State University, but within the field of academia. Um, you could say highbrow academics um, viewed uh, studying popular culture and teaching it in the classroom as sort of denigrating academia. Um, and they felt that, you know, everything should just be focused in on the classics. So he was incredibly groundbreaking in that regard. Um, that being said, um, Dr. Brown really kind of went through, you know, these kind of battles in, in terms of uh, against this sort of attitude against studying popular culture. Um, and it really was his can-do spirit that helped, helped things prevail. He was a doer. He knew how to organize. He knew how to write a press release and 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 get recognition for the things that he was doing. So he started the Department of Popular Culture. Uh, and then he also, at the same time, he was working with um, uh, Professor Bill Shirk uh, in forming the Popular Culture Library and also in, crea in creating the Sound Recordings Archive, which are both at BGSU today. And of course, the libraries now, uh, the Ray and Pat Brown um, a Popular Culture Library, and the Sound Recordings Archives is known as the Bill Shirk Sound Recordings Archives. And both those facilities are very unique. And both those facilities serve um, not only the students and faculty at BGSU, but uh, researchers from all around the world. And, and the ironic part is that you know, Dr. Brown went through all of these struggles. And, and if folks are interested, there's a great book. It's called Against Academia, which was written by Dr. Ray Brown. Uh, and it, it, it's just a fascinating look. Somebody needs to do a biopic on, on, on him and his life someday, um, because it really highlights kind of not only his personal trials and tribulations, but also the trials and tribulations in terms of challenging academia in this way. Um, and there's also another amazing book, collection of his writings, you could say his greatest hits of his writings, um, and it's uh, it's um, it's called On the Cultural uh, uh, Studies Revolution, I believe that that's what it's called, uh, and it was edited by um, Dr. Ben Yurish. And, and I, I bring all this up for folks who, who may be interested in, in kind of scratching the surface on studying popular culture and how the study of popular culture came to be. The other fascinating part about it is that, you know, there was this intense resistance towards studying popular culture. And through all of this, the Department of Popular Culture you know, was doing some amazing and kind of groundbreaking things. Um, having an undergraduate degree uh, in the field of uh, popular culture through the Department of Popular Culture at Bowling Green State University, then a master's degree uh, in that, you know, students still till this day can get uh, in popular culture at Bowling Green State University uh, through the through the uh, Department of Popular Culture um, uh, department. But also then students um, can get a Ph.D., with an emphasis in popular culture through the American Culture Studies program. So there's always been this kind of cooperation, not only in terms of the Brown Popular Culture Library, the Bill Shirk Sound Recordings Archives, but also uh, the American Culture Studies Department. So for instance, Chuck and I are both graduates of that PhD program, where we basically have an emphasis in popular culture. And I guess I would say, going back, the ironic part is that 
Now it's hip to study popular culture in the classroom. You know, he really broke down a lot of those barriers. Uh, and then what we see is by the late 80s, early 1990s, it really became hip to kind of study it. And then more so as we kind of get into the late, late 1990s and now into the 2000s. And you'll find that pretty much almost every university around the country and in the world has a course related to something in popular culture, whether it be like a popular film class or a popular music course or a popular literature course or, you know, course on the history of television and so on. And all of that really is is thanks to Ray Brown. Uh, and definitely the Brown Popular Culture Library plays such a key role uh, in all of that and particularly with the work that Tyne is doing. Gosh. I was going to say, Thank so Tyne, do you want to dive into the library? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for teeing me up, Matt. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, like Matt was saying, I think he gave a really good description um, of our history and uh, the service that we do. Um, the development of the Brown Popular Culture Library um, happened around the same time that the Popular Culture Department was developed by Brown. Um, and I think... Um, I mean, not only the act of studying popular culture was uh, relatively groundbreaking at the time and continues, at least in some communities, to be relatively uh, unusual, but I think the act of collecting um, artifacts of popular culture is something that was particularly groundbreaking in the early 70s when the library was established. And even to this day, I think we are, we're an extremely unique collection. Um, we consider ourselves one of the most comprehensive collections of North American uh, popular culture materials uh, in the country and potentially in the world. Um, we collect materials that not a lot of libraries and especially not a lot of special collections libraries tend to hold on to. When I say special collections, I mean, um, somewhere kind of in between being an academic uh, library and almost to the degree of museum uh, level collections. So um, keeping, our, we are a closed text collection. So a lot of our materials or none of our materials circulate except for our DVDs. Um, so the goal is um, not only to uh, collect as many materials related to our um, collection strengths as we can, but also to preserve them and make sure that they are accessible to future generations. Um, Gosh, sorry, I'm a little rambling at this point. It's a little late for me. So here's, um, here's the important question. Yeah. What is your most favorite piece in the collection? Oh, gosh, that's a really difficult question to answer. Um, ah, goodness. Um, well, I'm at the Manuscripts Archivist, so not only do we collect, um, you know, books and comic books and realia, meaning physical um material objects, but we also collect papers of writers, especially genre writers like mystery, um, horror, and especially, especially romance. Um, so that's, the, those are some of the collections that I work the most closely with and that are sort of the closest to my heart, I guess. Um, we have a really wonderful uh, collection that I was processing recently of a, uh, of a romance writer named Sandra Kitt, um, who just happened to collect almost everything um, throughout her romance career, but also is a wonderfully gifted artist. So we have not only a lot of her papers, but a lot of her original artwork and things like that as well. So I know, and that's not one object and being a an archivist means that your collections are not one object sort of by essence. Um, 
So I'm sorry, I can't really give a really distinct answer. And I think my favorite, my favorite object in the collection really changes day to day. Hey, nobody ever said I had to play fair. It is my show. (laughs) (laughs) Real quick, though, I also want to mention not only, you know, did did Dr. Ray Brown, uh, because we really have to give really incredible tribute to him. Without him, none of us would be here. But um, not only did he start the Department of Popular Culture, but also the Brown Popular Culture Library and work with Bill Shirk and helping to develop Sound Recordings Archives. He also started the um, national organization, the Popular Culture Association, which is very which is still in effect. Uh, It's a it's a national organization in terms of an an academic organization for uh, the study of popular culture. And they also have feature um, a national conference every year and it's also tied into the journal of popular culture Uh, and then in addition to that um dr ray brown um coordinated uh these regional popular culture associations so there's the midwest popular culture association there's a southwest popular culture association and so on and again he was a doer so he started the popular press which was a publishing branch uh related to popular culture so he was so intrinsically involved uh, in so many different areas, it's 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 really unbelievable and and still till this day really inspiring. Ray Brown, I I was fortunate to take a class with him in one of the classes um, that he that he was teaching at BGSU, and it was one of those situations where it was just sort of one of those unbelievable kind of experiences because you're with this guy and he's just. You know, he was elderly at that point in time, but just so still incredibly dynamic and still doing things and publishing. And it really is a tribute to him what we're doing. So the pop culture conference you guys uh, are putting on this year is a tribute to the web slinger himself. So how did the the, co- the conference itself get started? Well, uh, well, uh, in uh, 2019, we, well, we've done several conferences over the years, and I'm sure Matt will talk about the ones that he's really been great at. But in 2019, um, not too long before COVID struck, we had a Batman in popular culture conference to celebrate the 80th anniversary of Batman. Um, and the response was tremendous. We had people literally come from India, from Europe, from all over the United States. And our goal at these conferences is not just to be a, a kind of a dry academic affair, uh, we want fans, we want collectors, we want people who create this this stuff. Um, and so it's more of a, it is an academic look at, at Batman or Spider-Man, but it's also a celebration of what makes these superhero icons endure for, for so many years. And I should just mention, Dr. Brown partially helped inspire that because back in the early 70s, he contacted Stan Lee and Stan Lee came out to Bowling Green um, in the early 1970s. So um, it's, we're trying to carry on what he did all those decades ago. And definitely in terms of the conferences, because again, this is something that uh, something that he, he was so intrinsically involved in and, and, and so dynamic. You know, one of the er- earlier conferences that he started was at BGSU, and then he did something similar in the Northwest Ohio area, in the Toledo mm-hmm. area, and, and then beyond. But what we've been trying to do is is organize these conferences with a variety of different themes. So, for instance, one of the early conferences that we did was on uh, heavy metal music and popular culture. 
Uh, then we did uh, one on the electric guitar in popular culture. Then, as Chuck said, uh, then we did the Batman in popular culture. And and Chuck and I had kind of been conceptualizing doing a conference. And then at, after the Batman one, then COVID hit. Uh, and that really shut everything down. But then once things opened up, you know, Chuck and I joined forces. And then we joined forces with Tyne. And we sort of put our heads together. And we thought, well, why? You know, the Batman one was so successful and what would be another you know topic that would be equally as as popular and we decided well let's do spider-man in popular culture and and uh definitely you know one of uh one of the world's most popular um uh uh you know comic book heroes superheroes you know of all time i would say definitely in terms of you know, equal up there in terms of Batman and and, and Spider Man are always kind of going toe to toe in term in terms of popularity and just um uh and so the three of us kind of joined forces and we decided well this is something that we could do that would be really kind of special uh and and what we've also been trying to do with these conferences is is kind of unusual uh, because a lot of these conferences quite frankly are pay to play. Uh, particularly the academic conferences. So a lot of academic conferences, if you're speaking at an academic conference, you know, often the hardcore reality is you have to pay hundreds and hundreds of dollars just to speak for, say, 20 minutes and participate. And then you get to view some of the other panels and so on. And the tradition that we've been going back to in terms of the other conferences that I mentioned and this one uh, is that we did not want to be involved in that whole kind of pay-to-play uh, concept. So um, for the speakers uh, and, you know, the presenters and the keynotes, we 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 got rid of that kind of barrier in terms of having to pay a fee uh, to be able to speak. But also uh, unusual, too, uh, for the public, um, uh, we also have opened it up in terms of providing an opportunity for the public to be engaged with this topic and um, have it be uh, free. So um, it is free for uh, the public to attend. And, and we created a situation that it's free for uh, the keynote speakers as well as the other presenters. And this is something that we really want to try and continue to do. So uh, we're really proud of that. And there's a, a variety of kind of dynamics that went into in terms of the funding for it. Um, and we, we definitely were really thrilled to be able to make it that way because uh the pay to play conference bit it's really it's really played out so um time maybe you can kind of follow up on some of that sure yeah um yeah i was very excited when chuck and matt approached the library about kind of collaborating on um not just a popular culture conference but uh, especially one about spider-man um i think spider-man is such a logical sort of um second, not second act exactly, but the next the next superhero in line, essentially, uh, after such a successful conference um, centered around Batman. Um, I think among students and also among uh, the researchers who come to visit our library, I can only speak for the library, not really the department, but I think um, Spider-Man is one of the most researched and one of the most discussed um, superheroes, I think, of Marvel, but also just in general, when we're considering like who are the biggest um, superheroes who are being talked about in academic circles, um, not just comics, but also where Spider-Man occurs, um, you know, in film, of course. 
uh, but also kind of throughout the world, because I feel like there's some like Spider-Man is really um, become so absorbed into everyday culture uh, far beyond where he originally occurred. Um, and of course, like, like Matt and Chuck were both saying, this is a conference that is being sponsored by academic departments and an academic library. But of course, we love that this is going to be um, not just uh, academic speakers being featured, um, but also a fan community experience um, and a way for fans to speak as well. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to seeing that uh, sort of hybrid experience of a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different points of view when we're talking about Spider-Man. And, and that really was really um, popular when we did the Batman conference. We had collectors, we had someone who had the original um, pilot costumes that Adam West and Burt Ward wore when they were testing for Batman and Robin. We had a, a man who, um, who uh, has an entire company where they make Batmobiles for very rich, very rich guys to drive around. Um, and, and so it's, you don't have to be, have a PhD or have an advanced degree to love or be an expert in Spider-Man. There are many people here who are coming to this conference who know much more about Spider-Man than I do. And our goal is to sort of bring everybody together, showcase the library and look at all the different venues that Spider-Man has been in, been in. He's been in film, he's been in cartoons, there's been a Broadway musical. And we'll be looking at him from, I'm, well, I'm sure Matt and Tyne could do, do this better than I can, but, you know, Spider-Man and religion, Spider-Man and um, uh, uh, capitalism, or, or whatever the topic might be, and all the various different Spider-Men and women that are out there now in the Spider-Verse. Sorry, guys. Just, my dog is freaking out. I'm going to mute real quick. No, definitely, definitely in terms of, you know, what we're trying to do in terms of, you know, providing a platform uh, for folks. And, and really, in many ways, you know, this conference is is really for the presenters and the keynotes. I mean, in, in many ways, because it is something that uh, all of all of those folks involved are so knowledgeable about the topic and it's just a great opportunity for all of these different folks to come together and it should be noted you know just as, as chuck was mentioning we have such a wide variety of folks kind of coming in we've got we've got a couple people coming in from india we've got people coming from all over the united uh -huh. states to come uh, and speak on all of these different topics as chuck had mentioned um, and we love we love the you know our keynote speakers. A lot of times at conferences, usually they'll have like one keynote speakers. But we said, hey, let's do let's let's just kind of overdo it, and we're we're doing four keynote speakers. So we are bringing in uh, Mark Sumerak, who is a writer for Marvel and has done a, uh, quite a bit of writing uh, on Spider Man, but also Marvel ventures as well as Star Wars uh, ventures and so on. Uh, we're bringing Rick Leonardi, uh, an, an artist for Marvel, who's done quite a bit of work on Spider-Man and in other areas. Uh, we're bringing in Bruce Wechtenheiser, who uh, is presumably he has one of the largest sort of Spider-Man 
realia collections in the world not only comic books but everything from you know toys to pinball machines to t-shirts uh and then we are also bringing in um jim collins uh from uh, jc's comics uh pop culture store and more uh who, who's located here in northwest ohio to talk about the selling of spider-man so again it's it's not only academics it's also you know folks who have just a, a background and or an interest uh, and or creative aspects uh, related to Spider-Man and popular culture. So from some of the other presentations, you know, what kind of presentations are people going to get? You know, because I was flipping through some of the titles and I'm like, yeah, I need to try to figure out how to get to Bowling Green. Um, my nephew would be really happy to be going to Bowling Green, but I don't know that it's smart to turn him loose at 14. Um so what are some of the, the highlights and some of the, the key presentations and, and stuff that people are going to see? I don't I don't have my list in front of me. I'm I'm sorry. But basically, it's going to be sort of an informal academic panel um, that will be having people speak in, in, under various sort of larger topics. And they each will talk for about 15 or 20 minutes. Um, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to the, uh, the religion and Spider-Man and sort of spider and how Spider-Man has changed over time. Uh, now we have the Miles Morales version of Spider-Man. Uh, we have um, the the Gwen Stacy Spider Gwen that, that's running around out there. Um, and the interesting thing is, for me, a lot of the students, for example, in my comic book history course at the moment, they they are familiar with the character outside of the comics. So they may not read comic books or have very little experience with them, but they have seen all the movies. And it's so lots of people are coming from this at, from different areas. I'm not sure, Matt, do you have any specific one that you're looking forward to? Well, there's there's a few. I mean, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing this kind of global perspective um, related to Spider-Man. And this this will be very fascinating uh, to see um, our two speakers coming in from India to, to talk about uh, Spider-Man's popularity uh, in India, and then there's another um, another uh, speaker coming in from India who's talking about Spider-Man's popularity uh, in Pakistan and their connect and its connection to the culture uh, in 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 those two countries. Um, and definitely, there's there there's an interesting um, fellow coming in, uh, and he, he's one of our last presenters on friday who's talked who, who's sort of like a role player uh in terms right. of spider-man and he goes into like children's hospitals to try and bring them uh a light uh in terms of of their day uh and try and cheer them up through you know getting into the costume of spider-man and kind of role-playing spider-man um and there's just so many and it's just really awesome you know there's uh uh, this high idea of a of a, a library and stereotype in terms of the first Spider Woman uh, and the connection to um, uh, uh, female uh, women characters in Spider Man. So there's that perspective also going on. Uh, we also have uh, uh, Spider Man in the in the courtroom um, that's also kind of come you know being addressed and and being presented upon. 
And generally, each presenter, we're giving about 15 to 20 minutes. That's sort of, a you know, the kind of the standard in terms of academia, with the exception of our keynote. So, of course, our keynotes will be given a longer time to speak. Uh, generally, our, our presenters will go about 15 to 20 minutes, and we have about approximately three presenters uh, per session. So, um, that, you know, gives about 45 minutes, 50 minutes to present followed up by 10 minutes of, of question and answer. Tyne, you have uh, some other favorites that you might want to mention? Sure, yeah. It's, al it's always hard to choose sort of like a key feature, key speaker, because we don't even have a key keynote, you know? <laughs> um, the really, the delightful part of being involved with this conference is that there's so, there's so many people and so many perspectives being represented. So, but not to, I'm not going to give like a Miss America answer there. Um, <laughs> My background is in studio art and art history. So I am really excited that we're having uh, one panel that has to do with um, visual art uh, as well as music and storytelling. Um, one person is gonna be talking about minimalism and abstraction, which is just singing my <laughs> singing my tune. So that's very exciting. Um, I'm also really looking forward to the international panel as well. Um, it's just, it's really special that we're going to be able to host some people who are traveling from so far away. Um, and also definitely looking forward to the um, to the performer who dresses as Spider-Man um, to visit children in the hospital. I'm trying to think, I have it open on my iPad here. If there's any other ones that I'm particularly excited about, I think Matt mentioned that in the courtroom one, which is one of our more unique speakers, he's actually a lawyer who's going to be kind of giving that insider perspective of it. Um, we also have a small panel on Friday, I believe, that's uh, sort of spooky Spider-Man and science fiction uh, stories. So a, a highlight on some of those themes. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I'm excited for just about everybody. <laughs> it's going to be a lot of fun. I, I think that the one thing that all of these speakers share is that they really love this character. And that's what I find interesting about popular culture. Here's this you know, it's ink and color on a and words on a on a page and all these other formats. But it's Spider-Man has made a real connection to people uh, that they really have an emotional attachment to this character who never who doesn't really exist. And they know his background and they know all about, you know, his love life and and his problems with the boss at the at the Daily Bugle. And um, we I know people who have who've named their children after Spider-Man. Uh, named their sons Parker uh, because of Spider-Man. It's it's amazing how strong the pull of popular culture is. People can dismiss it. Well, it's just a TV show. It's just a comic book and it's disposable. But people really take these things to heart. And I think that's what Dr. Brown was all about. These things should be not just celebrated, but also studied in a, in a serious way. My background is in English literature. Um, and so the way I was reading Shakespeare plays and and you know Victorian novels, you can do that with Spider-Man. It's not the same format, but it, it's still this. It's still reading and it's still literature. And I know for me, you know, really, it's um, it's kind of a personal thing, you know. Uh, and uh, you know, Chuck and Tyne might be tired of this story, but you know, it was uh, 
when I was quite, you know, when I was younger, I did not come from a, a, a family of privilege and I had to get a job when I was like nine, basically to, to, to pay for my clothes and my, my notebooks for school and this sort of thing. And the job that I had was a paper route and uh, it was for the blade, which was a, a newspaper in the Northwest Ohio area out of Toledo, the Toledo blade. And, um, you know, I couldn't afford uh, comic books. I couldn't afford, you know, uh, uh, very you know, much of anything. But I was so thrilled because I would get the batch of newspapers before anyone. And in the newspaper, they had a whole slew of comics. And the one that I gravitated towards the most was Spider-Man because of all those things that Chuck mentioned. It was just something about this character you know he's he's going through these personal struggles he also did not come from a family of privilege and he had, you know he had to get a little job to kind of make his way through the world um and and it was just something about this character that just it, it just it was it was it was amazing because it was sort of like you know it was something not only i could identify with but you could sort of put yourself into into you know the shoes of peter parker and i just love the idea of getting this batch of newspapers first before anybody that i would deliver the papers to and the first thing i would gravitate towards was the you know little panel that came out every day on spider-man and read that and just i couldn't wait for the next day to come to see what was going to happen next in the story and the next day, what was going to happen next to the, in the story and so on. And it was just something that was really kind of, um, it was really special and, and, and something that's, you know, kind of amazing because it's sort of gone f full circle now going from that early inspiration and that really er early introduction to comics uh, and, and superheroes. And then now being able to, uh, do something like this with this conference, uh, which is taking place on um, Friday, September 29th and Saturday, September 30th um, on the campus of Bowling Green State University in Jerome Library uh, at, at, uh, at Bowling, in Bowling Green, Ohio. So uh, in terms of uh, uh, that interest and in, in that um, where the conference is being located, that's also something folks should should know. Yeah. That's a good plug. I appreciate it. Um, I wish I had um, such a as lovely a story, I guess, of a history as Matt does. Um, but I guess I'll speak a little to because um, I think we're we're coming from slightly different generations. We can just acknowledge that, um, and so I think our touchstones with Spider Man is going to be a little bit different. And I'm stricken. I'm struck by struck. I'm struck by the um, ubiquity sort of of the story um, and ethos and character of Spider-Man because um, I'm kind of a lifelong comic reader. Um, my bread and butter was more um, comic strip collections and things like that when I was young. But, you know, I know at some point I must have read some Spider-Man comics or I know I must have seen some Spider-Man TV shows and things like that. I don't have a clear memory of that. What I do have a clear memory of is going to see the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie in theaters and thinking and like having some editorial understanding of like, well, that's a good way of describing his origin story or that's a problem. 
And like, that's not quite perfect. You know what I mean? It's like, why would I even have an idea of what's correct and not correct about this origin story when I don't even remember reading or watching it for the first time, right? Thinking of the Tobey Maguire watch as being some sort of second watch in some way. And so for me, it's almost like, you know, the Spider-Man story has been so soaked into our sort of cultural knowledge that it's become some sort of gospel truth. And so strange that I could go into a movie like that and think I could have any sort of opinion on it when I'm not even sure when I ever even read it for the first time. Um, yeah, well, that's a great point because you know, I, I, you're both talking and I'm trying to remember when did I first become aware of Spider-Man. I, it may have been on the old electric company PBS show where he didn't speak. Uh, with Morgan Freeman and Rita Moreno, but 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 that what both Tyne and Matt are saying is is really true. People have a strong connection to this character, and he's been so much a part of all of our lives. And to a certain extent, maybe now more than ever, these superheroes are I, I consider them something like American mythology. Even if you've never read a comic book, uh, your grandmother may even know you know the basic premise of you know who Batman is and how he came to be, or Superman. Um, and, and Spider-Man falls into that, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And I think the other thing that we're going to be talking a little bit about at this conference is that I'm sure Stan Lee and all those other creators could never have imagined that these things would be billion-dollar franchises, that a character like Ant-Man could get a sequel that would make close to a billion dollars. You know, uh, again, when, you know, I, I, am, I am getting old, I got all gray hair now, but um, when I was in college, most college students didn't know who Tony Stark was. Uh, you know, he was sort of a third tier character, Iron Man. And now he's ubiquitous. Every, yeah. every kid in America knows that little raccoon from the Guardians of the Galaxy. So the interesting thing is how, this, how these characters evolve and change over time. The Spider-Man that, that sold in 1960, that's great. But it has to change and evolve and grow with the times or it's not going to carry on. Well, and and I, that's, that's really where the whole kind of multiverse, you know, uh, uh, films have, have kind of played that role because, you know, you watch, you watch, I mean, particularly the latest film, I mean, towards, towards the end there, they just inundate you with all these different characters who've appeared in Spider-Man over, over the decades. And it's just, it's mind blowing to see how many iterations of Spider-Man there are. So, you know, looking at things and, and the fact that, A, you've been able to maintain a program for like this for so long, right? And the fact that you've got people coming from all over the globe to a conference around, like you say, modern mythology. I think that is part of the power of when we look at characters from comics. I mean, we look at all the mediums that we can see people. I mean, Spider-Man has been, you know, books, films, TV, games you know, kind of the gamut. If there's a way to to go out there and push the story, push the experience, Spider-Man is one of the characters that has been out there in that forefront and is often used as one of the ones to lead the way in, in the new mediums, new kinds of storytelling, everything else. So, and I was kind of just in a conversation about this at DragonCon, it's the power of these characters as modern myth, Right. So looking at this from, from that academic study standpoint, looking at it from having fans come in for an academic conference, you know, having fans speaking at what in, you know, what is an academic conference? 
you know, what do you think that the the ultimate, you know, societal importance is of programs like this and being able to mix academic views of modern mythology with the fans and let them get that view of things? Well, I'll start and I'll pass it off to Matt. I, I think, we're again, we keep going back to Ray Brown, but I know our goal at the department and I'm sure at the library is that learning or college learning can't be confined to the classroom. So I know we all have given talks and various, you know, locations, rotary clubs and historical societies and various things. Um, and so we want to go out and spread the word that this stuff is important. Um, and it need not be just comic books. The Pop Culture Library, for example, has a great collection of soap opera scripts. And mm -hmm. they have, you know, um, I'm having my class come there in a couple of weeks where all of the students are going to be looking at old issues of TV Guide. They have practically every issue of the TV Guide ever published in bound volumes. And we're going to look at that as an arch a cultural artifact. You know, the student will pick the week. What was happening in that week in television in, you know, May 1974? Um, and the students are, are, are really interested in, in this time before they were born. The thing that always gets mentioned for the TV Guide project is how many ads for cigarettes there were in the old, old TV Guide. But I think going back to what I said, what Matt said at the beginning is a, a, a program like this and a library like this can't just be for the academics. It can't just be for people studying and writing a book and putting it on a shelf. We want people to come and experience all the great things at the library. And one of the drawbacks some people might say is that, unfortunately, our, our conference is not going to be um, online. The goal is to come sort of an old-fashioned way and meet and exchange ideas with people who, who can come um, and, and tour the library and tour the facility um, because we, we use it all the time and we just want to help spread the word. And definitely in terms of, you know, this whole notion of, as Chuck mentioned, you know, uh, uh, we view popular cultures as the culture of everyday life. That is so key and crucial to exa exactly what, you know, Dr. Ray Brown and, and his whole vision was. And to kind of pick up uh, off of what Chuck mentioned is this, what's fascinating is the idea of time and how popular culture represents what's going on in society during a particular period of time. And, you know, I mean, maybe to throw out a, just a music example, if you go back to, you know, the mid 1960s and you wanted to know what was popular during that particular period of time, well, certainly you'd have to look at, you know, the British invasion and the, and, and the Beatles and the who and the Yardbirds and the Rolling Stones and how they represented that particular period of time. Or maybe you go, you know, 10 years prior to the, to the mid 1950s and what was popular during that period of time. And oh, it was, you know, uh, Rockabilly and Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash. Or if you fast forward to say the mid 1970s, and again, I'm just using music as an example you know, mid 1970s, what was popular during that period of time? You could, you know, variety of things like, you know, hard rock kind of coming into the picture with, you know, Black Sabbath or Deep Purple or punk rock coming into the picture with, with groups like the Ramones or the Clash. So that's also a, a fascinating aspect. I know Chuck and I both deal with in our courses because we deal with a lot of this stuff, not from some heavy you know, uh, what I would view almost as unapproachable theoretical point of view, but it's really almost from a, very much a historical point of view and how there's been these different moments in time that, you know, you can look 
at pop culture and kind of gauge what was going on in society during a particular time and maybe the attitudes and beliefs in in a a particular period of time. And I think pop culture really plays a, a role in that. And the only other thing I would add, I should have added at the beginning, is, you know, I was just reading in the New York Times this morning an appreciation for Jimmy Buffett. You know, now Jimmy Buffett didn't mean too much to me, but he struck a chord with the hu- millions of people around the world. Or look at the response that happened when when Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman passed away. Mm-hmm. I had students in my class saying, well, who is who was this guy? They had they had no idea. Um, and then there are other people who, you know, Pee Wee Herman, he, Pee Wee Herman was 70 years old. I mean, he was just so much a part of our lives in the in the 80s and 90s. And we forget, I think, at times that the pop culture does move on, that things aren't always going to be popular. I tell my students, for example, you know, will Taylor Swift be popular in 20, 30 years? No, I don't know. I've got students now who tell me, well, oh, Madonna, my mom listened to Madonna. So it's 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 a it's just like Matt said, it's trying to use popular culture to look at the larger culture. Totally. Sorry, I'm trying to think of you guys had a lot of really great thoughts and how I can build on that. I think a lot has been said. Oh, sorry. Well, I was gonna say, because from an archivist standpoint, right? Yeah. You're looking at you're looking at everything through time. You're looking, especially the print material, being a writer, that sort of calls to me anyway. Mm-hmm. But I mean, just that fact of you're getting to look at things through time. And as you mentioned, you're a little younger than the rest of us, too. So yeah, you're getting a very particular view of how much has come before. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, like, like I, I think I mentioned before, like earlier, um, this is a lot of what we do has to do with this question of what's worthy of being preserved. Um and yes, there are a lot of things that um, even at the time were not thought to be worthy of being preserved, let alone being studied. Chuck mentioned the TV guides that we have in our collection, which are absolutely this ephemeral material that um, was printed on paper that was not meant to last. Um, and seeing it in library binding is really odd, essentially. I mean, it's something that I see every day, but really it is strange um, from a lot of people's perspective because um, in uh, academic circles, but also outside of academic circles, things like TV Guide or National Enquirer or Playboy, all of which are in our collection, by the way, uh, wouldn't necessarily be thought of as um, worthy of being preserved and definitely not worthy of being studied in a serious way. And I think uh, in the popular culture library, but also department, um, a lot of what we're doing is pushing up against the accepted you know, academic standards of what's worthy of being studied. Uh, In some departments like art history or English, that would be a question of, are we disrupting a canon or something like that? But obviously I think um, in popular culture, especially, it's almost as though like this is not um, something that is even accepting of a canon. I think sometimes, sure, like it'll be a question of how can we fit something like romance into a canon of literature that's worthy of being studied. But I think the um, lack of willingness to think about something like Harlequin romance is something that can be fit into any sort of canon is something that we come up against, um, like even among circles who think that they're really destabilizing a canon. I think in terms of um, Culture and class, there's a lot, there's still a lot of materials, popular culture materials that academics 
um, have a lot of resistance to um, studying in a serious way. And of course, a lot of libraries um, have absolutely no interest in collecting or spending any of their precious space on, which we do, and makes us a particularly unique resource um, for the people, the growing really population of people who are interested in studying these materials seriously, um, or even not seriously, right? Because like, it's wonderful to be able to collect something. I'll continue to use the example of romance novels. Um, sure, for people who are academics and who want to talk about the changing representation of, you know, female desire throughout the decades. Sure, it's great that we have resources that can support that. But it's also great to be able to show people of, say, earlier generations, like books that they read in the 70s and the 80s that, again, were not meant to last, that weren't printed on paper that was meant to last, that were probably thrown away, that they would have bought, say, at a grocery store counter or, you know, the discount rack at a bookstore and never would have seen again and being able to actually see them on our shelves even if it's not for serious inquiries something that's really special you know this is um i think when you initially asked your question jim you know about what's important about our work uh in the conference but also in general i think is really great to think about the expansion of a term like expertise because um I think in academic circles, like you have to have a certain number of accolades and a certain amount of like academic experience and publications to be able to can be considered an expert or to have expertise in a certain field, even with something like comics, you know, and some people might, which I've heard around kind of the water cooler at work with some of our student employees of being like, I'm not sure I would want to speak at a conference about um, Spider-Man because I'm not sure I know enough. But I think what's really terrific is that um, we have speakers who know enough in lots of different aspects of what it means to know enough about something like Spider-Man, because it's not just being an expert at comics or being an expert at movies or being able to like interpret it in a way that's um, erudite and smart enough, essentially. Um, I think giving so many different people a platform to speak um, breaks down the notion of what it means to have to be an expert in a field like this, I guess. That's a little rambly, but hopefully that's, oh, no, that's exactly right. That's... And, and, I, and it's something I should have said at the beginning, too, is that popular culture is not just mass media. It's also things from the ground up. It's not just these comic book corporations, Marvel and DC or the television networks or the movie studios. It's also people doing fanzines and people doing slash fiction and people doing you know, their own creativity, oftentimes with characters and, that they don't have the right, the copyright to use. But that's popular culture, too. Uh, popular culture is Bruce Springsteen, and it's also that garage band. And it's also Arthur Fiedler doing the Boston Pops on PBS or Lawrence Welk. It's all popular culture, as far as I think we're all concerned. Well, is there anything else we need to let everybody know about the conference? Other than maybe dates and time? Well, um, sorry to pipe up. Uh, yeah, we're um, in addition to uh, the speakers um, and the keynotes who are also speakers, we are going to be on Friday, we'll be having a tour of the Popular Culture Library. Um, so if you're, you happen to be in the Bowling Green area and you're already attending, um, we'll be doing some quick tours showing behind the scenes because as I said earlier, as a special collections library, 
it's not the kind of thing that you can just walk in and see any day. Even though the library is open to the public, our stacks are usually um, harder to see. So it is really a cool opportunity to see all the materials that we have, some related to Spider-Man, but some in, like in general. Um, the Popular Culture Library is going to be having a display of some of our Spider-Man realia, aka Spider-Man stuff, um, on our floor. We're also going to be having a very small display um, about, actually about Stanley's visit to BGSU and his relationship with the PCA, uh, which Chuck and or Matt alluded to earlier. Um, so we dug up some of our uh, manuscript materials related to that, and we're going to be showing them off. Um, that is the end of my plug. And I would just say, you know, we really uh, welcome uh, folks who aren't presenting at the conference to come to Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio, on Friday, September 29th, and Saturday, September 30th, for the Spider-Man and Popular Culture Conference. The conference begins on Friday. We'll be going from 8 in the morning until 8 at night. Uh, and on Saturday, we're going from 10 in the morning until 8 at night. It should be noted that um, the conference is taking place in Jerome Library in the Pallister Conference Room. Uh, and that the conference is free. So... If folks have an interest in Spider-Man, popular culture, or this kind of new idea of a popular culture library, uh, we welcome folks uh, to uh, uh, come on, on Friday, September 29th and Saturday, September 30th to the Spider-Man and Popular Culture Conference. And it's also a great opportunity for folks to visit the campus of Bowling Green State University because I know a lot, you know, perhaps a lot of our speakers who are in the academic field or otherwise maybe haven't been to BGSU before. And that also applies to uh, the public who might be interested in coming, but also an opportunity for folks to visit Bowling Green, Ohio, um, you know, and, and, and you know, see uh, this kind of cool little college town um, and, and what it has to offer, because there's been such a strong connection between Bowling Green State University and the city of Bowling Green. So it's really just a great chance for folks to not only come and and, and hear uh, some amazing talks on Spider-Man and its con his connection and the connection of Spider-Man to popular culture, um, some amazing keynote speakers, the Brown Popular Culture Library visit, but also the campus of BGSU and, and the city of Bowling Green. Okay. Well, I would add it's and it's an excelsior, as Stanley would say. <laughs> well, before we get out of here, um, do you guys want to let everybody know where to reach you guys if they've got any questions or want to follow up on some of you guys' own projects? So, Chuck? Well, um, I'm only on Twitter or X, whatever it's called at the moment. Um, I'm Dr. Pop Culture USA. Um, and we also have a uh, website devoted to the Spider-Man conference and Tyne or Matt, what is that exactly? It's blanking out of my head at the moment, uh, just when I needed it. It is um, bgsu.edu slash library slash SpideyCon, S-P-I-D-E-Y, con. And I'll throw the link up there for that too. Just if you Google search BGSU Spider-Man, we, sh we, sh we should pop up. And right. you'll see all the speakers who are coming and our guest speakers and so forth. 
And, you know, um, I have a personal website. It's www.md1210.com. So, again, it's www.md1210.com. Uh, that highlights uh, my area in terms of my work as an educator in the field of popular culture, as well as uh, uh, music, film, uh, and uh, the visual arts and, and writing and so on. Um, I love collaborating with people, and so folks can always reach out to me. I'm very open about, you know, my personal email. It's md1210 at yahoo.com. So that's also another avenue for folks to reach out. And as uh, as my colleagues mentioned, um, you can definitely just do a search, Spider-Man and Popular Culture Conference, and, and most definitely um, our, our uh, website, um, uh, official website through the university will come up. Uh, and there's there's three areas and components to that uh, page when folks come to it. Uh, there is the um, uh, the schedule, uh, and then there's the schedule with abstracts, which um, each speaker uh, has uh, has presented um, an abstract about what their talk is about. And also there's a facts page, which I think will be helpful for folks who may be coming from out of town or might be, not be familiar with BGSU uh, that has a, a, a load of information in terms of, you know, hotels in the area and or, you know, flying in. In, in what airport to fly into and you know the, either the Toledo Express airport or the or the Detroit airport um and as well as some background information on our keynotes and and the schedule and kind of all the happenings um uh for uh Friday September 29th and Saturday September 30th at the Spider-Man in Popular Culture Conference taking place at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green Ohio. Nice. Uh, how about you? Sure. Um, I am the one who mostly posts on the libraries. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and still call it Twitter. In my heart, it'll always be Twitter <laughs> account. Um, it is, I believe, uh, at BGSU underscore pop cult live. We, we, I post um, things from around the library, but also events going on around uh, BGSU's campus that involve us um, and I'll be posting plenty about uh, about the conference when it's happening. Also if you are if you want to know more about um, what we collect and what we do, uh, we are the Brown Popular Culture Library is open to researchers all the time. Um, the library the Durham Library itself is open to anyone, not just um, not just BGSU students um, or community members. Um, if you're interested in doing popular culture research or, just seeing some popular culture materials that you might not have seen in a long time. Again, don't have to be an expert. Um, please feel free to contact us if you go to the library's webpage um, and the Brown Popular Culture Libraries. There's an ask us function. Go ahead and send us a message. I uh, would be happy to chat with you and see if we happen to collect that thing that's of particular interest to you. Well, I appreciate you guys hopping on and looking forward to the conference. And until next time, this has been Creating Pros. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, Jim. We really, 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 really super appreciate it, man. We can't thank you enough. We really appreciate you helping to get the word out. We need, we need, we need all the help we can get. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so, so much. This was great. Always fun seeing you guys. Yeah, get in touch anytime. <laughs>